ACNFer. Look who's back. The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. Scrivener was created by writers for writers. It brings all the tools you need to craft your first draft together in one handy app. Scrivener won't tell you how to write. It simply provides everything you need to start writing and keep writing. And if you enter the coupon code NONFICTION, you have to type it like the NONFICTION, at checkout you'll receive 20% discounts off the regular versions of Scrivener for macOS and Windows. That'll buy you some coffee to fuel that writing sesh or whatever you want to buy with that extra 20%. So whether you plot everything out first or plunge in, write, and restructure later, Scrivener works your way. Uh, There's a great uh, anecdote in the book about a a woman uh, who winds up finding a bear going after her sheep, and she and her uh, llama have... Uh, some conflict with the bear that that's uh, very very fun and interesting. That's Matt Hongoltetling. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey hey, and this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Matt's new book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear: The Utopian Plot. Deliberate an American town and some bears. It's published by Public Affairs. We'll get to that, of course. Well, is this the end? I don't know, but it sure looks like it out there. The smoke and ash rolled in three days ago. It's like Thanos snapped and everyone blew away. Stick your head right into a smoldering fire pit. And that's what it's like to be outside right now as the fires rage. And the climate deniers say, it's the normal cycle of the earth and man has nothing to do with this. It's like a snow globe out there. Only it's ash and not snow and harmful particulates to breathe in. It's uh, unsettling. For now, we're okay where we are in Eugene. But uh, we have our go bags loaded, and we're ready to roll out when we get the alert from the man. Not sure where we'll go because we're surrounded by fire to the north, the east, the south, and of course, why not, the west. What are the essentials? I don't know, maybe the computers, the hard drives, Hank, and a microphone because the podcast stops for no wildfire man. You need your CNF and fix, and I'll be damned if I miss a week because of some cataclysmic, apocalyptic, climactic endgame. You hear me? Good. Be sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen to them, and consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. I understand it helps extinguish fires. So does subscribing to my reading list newsletter, where I give out reading recommendations, cool articles, and news from the podcast. I love putting it together. This little dispatch of cool shit for you to dig through, and hopefully it enriches your writing life. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. Oh yeah, in sure. By all means, follow the show on social media, at CNFPod. But I'm going strong with the social media detox, and uh, the blood seems to be pumping through my veins a little better. The blood pressure appears to be lower. 
I mean, I've gotten to a point where I, I almost forget it's there. I mean, I get emails from Twitter and Instagram telling me what I'm missing, which, if I'm being honest, is nothing. I do miss niche and we rate dogs, but I do really need to see, like, do I really need to see another rando pick of some dude's meal or, you know, oh, here's what came out of the garden. Okay, that's cool. I I can't eat those tomatoes. I have some. They're great, but I don't know. Or, you know, maybe some, some woman in a goofy-ass bike helmet taking a selfie. I don't need to see this anymore. I don't miss it. And frankly, you probably don't need to see me trying to be funny when I'm not. Or trying to be clever when I'm not. Begging for attention. And for what? I'd rather be working on putting together a badass podcast for you and maybe finishing my damn book. It's happening, bruh. It's happening. And as soon as I'm done, I'm going to spike my computer like a football. Roger Federer, the greatest tennis player of all time, single-handed backhand to the stars. During the height of his powers, he hired a coach. Writers, you should do the same, and I'd be honored to help you get where you need to go, whether it's a book, an essay, or query coaching with with me, it, it grants you detailed critiques of the work, email correspondence, a couple Skype calls, transcripts of those calls so you can refer to them as notes, and a person in your, in your corner who's willing to tell you, yep, this is when the shit gets hard. If you're ready to level up, I'd love to help. Email me and we'll start a dialogue. And maybe, just maybe, you'll write as good a book as Matt Hongolt's Hetling wrote. And maybe you'll jumpstart your freelance career from zero to Hongolt's, just like Matt did. Going from $30 stories in rural Maine to writing for The Atavist, among other places. And now this incredible, quirky, awesome book he wrote. It was amazing. It's a great, great piece of journalism, great writing, a lot of fun. And I hope you'll dig it. Here's me and Matt getting after it. Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how you got into this racket. You know, is it was writing something you all, were always that you chose, or was it something that kind of like a lot of other people writing chose you? <laughs> uh, I always wanted to write from a very early age. Um, uh, I, I've been telling the story recently that when I was like eight years old, I wrote my first book. Uh, it was 32 pages long on, uh, you know, like second grader school paper uh, about an elf that uh, befriends some monsters and kills some others. I don't want to brag, but it was pretty good. Uh, and then, uh, just kind of, uh, always had this kind of like passion for reading and for writing, but I also came from a very, uh, kind of like blue collar background and family. So the idea of being able to kind of like plug into, uh, the writing profession just never really seemed that realistic to me. And so, I was never really able to pursue it as a, a serious career option until I was an adult. And even then it kind of happened very, um, I don't know, not quite randomly, but 
Uh, I was in a place where I was taking, you know, pretty much any job that I could. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, uh, newly married, living in rural Maine, uh, you know, renting an apartment and having a hard time paying the rent. And so every day I was just, you know, whatever job is offered on Craigslist, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of like yeah. in that place in my life. Um, and my wife suggested, uh, you know, knowing what my skill set was, that I go and try to write for a local newspaper. Yeah, see if I could get a, a freelance job to do a one-off article for them. Uh, and I did, and I got paid 30 bucks for it. And that was really kind of like a light bulb moment for me where I, I kind of realized that like, you know, I may, maybe I can do this. Uh, started doing a bunch of articles at 30 bucks a pop and very, that, that was kind of like my entryway into the industry ever since then been reaching for the next step on the ladder with the ultimate goal of writing books. Um, and so that's why this first book being published is, you know, uh, I'm walking on cloud nine these days. Yeah. And where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York. Uh, it was a city called uh, Beacon uh, in the Hudson Valley. Uh, it's about halfway between uh, Albany and New York City uh, near Poughkeepsie uh, and also known as the okay. hometown of uh, folk singer Pete Seeger, uh, whose, whose son I went to grand school or whose grandson I went to school with. Nice. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Saratoga Springs in that area for mm-hmm. uh, for a time, and uh, and in the uh, the WAMC Public Radio bandwidth area, they are big Pete Seeger fans, and during all the fun drives that go on every three months there, like they they really harp on uh, you know Pete Seeger's uh, charity concerts before he passed away and everything. So, um, but yeah, I was very plugged into that area and really really love oh. that that stretch of uh, of New York. That's awesome to hear. Like when I was growing up. Uh, the town was very much run by kind of like conservative World War II veterans who who really did not like uh, what he stood for. Uh, so in fact, like when you drove into Beacon, it would say, "Yeah, welcome to Beacon, home of Kim Kraft, the 1980 uh, uh, third runner-up for uh, Olympic gymnastics." <laughs> you, you know, like, like uh, there, there's no acknowledgement uh, uh, of. Pete's presence uh, within the city, no, no celebration uh, of the fact that we had this uh, American icon uh, living uh, in our midst. It's kind of like the older he got, uh, the, the more the town kind of uh, uh, started to find a fondness for him. Right, right. And, and did you end up going to uh, uh, undergrad in that area in one of the SUNYs or did you go elsewhere? No, you know, I, I actually, I was uh, kind of a bad student, like outside of English classes where I was very motivated. Um, you know, I tended to have conflict with teachers that I, uh, for whatever reason, had uh, like personality disagreements with. And then that really uh, undercut my uh, academic record. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm probably really fortunate that I graduated high school at all. Uh, you know, like, like my SAT scores were uh, very, very good, but my uh, GPA was very, very bad. And I didn't have the, the sort of uh, mentorship or uh, uh, leadership or, or direction to really like kind of pad out my resume with as- aspirational activities, you know? <laughs> 
Uh, and so I went to community college for a year. Uh, and then my older brother convinced me to go to a, uh, state college in Illinois, uh, university of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, and you know, he, he filled out the application for me because I was so, uh, so much of a unmotivated loser. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and then I uh, actually never completed uh, my undergraduate degree, and so I'm I'm something like six credits shy of my bachelor's, and and it was just not a a, a path that ever uh, uh, really struck me. That's crazy. So so how do you end up getting to Maine? Yeah, you know, my family uh, had a couple of uh, had taken me on a couple of vacations there, like family vacations. Um, and so I knew I loved the uh, state and, and the East Coast in general. And my wife, she and I had like just gotten married and we knew that the uh, the city life, you know, Chicago, a, a, as beautiful of a city as it is, uh, we, we were not in a, we weren't really appreciating its upsides as much as we were feeling the brunt of its downsides, you know, so we were really being hit with parking tickets and, and uh, all the all the uh, hassles of the city, and so we just really wanted to kind of strike out and make a fresh start, uh, and, and so we, you know, drove into Maine, uh, filling up the gas tank with the the very last of our cash. And so I I love this idea of of you know you just starting to dip your toe into this into this freelance journalism kind of thing, writing these stories for thirty bucks and getting your feet wet. You know, what were the what were the things you were drawn to, and uh, you know what were the nature of those stories that were, you, you were able to get a little momentum going for yourself? Yeah, well, you know, um, most of the assignments early on were for those very small weekly rural newspapers. And so, you know, they, they dealt mostly with really kind of mundane uh, things. You know, you, you would go to the local city council or select board meeting. Uh, you would report on the new sewer contracts. You know, you, you would report on the uh, 1.3% tax increase. Uh, you know, municipal taxes and, and that sort of thing. You know, because I was not necessarily my end goal was always to write uh, more creatively. Right at first, I was just delighted to be writing. You know, to be getting paid for writing at all seemed like just kind of like a miracle to me. Uh, I also really wanted to be able to uh, write in ways that the, the kind of like strictures of journalism didn't always allow for, you know, uh, like I, I wanted to write interesting sentences and I, I didn't want to be a slave to the AP style book and, and all of that, you know, whenever I had the opportunity to, to do something that was more of a feature story, uh, I seized it, you know, so like I, I, would try to inject little bits of color into even the most mundane stories. Um, and when I had an opportunity to do like a profile on somebody or, or something like that, I, I would always kind of like seize that. There were several stories early on that kind of like represented that phase of my, my journalism career. Um, and I think the editors generally like were very supportive and when they could afford the resources to give me more than half a day to write an article, they were always very pleased with 
with the results and they knew that that was my passion. And so they tried to throw more of those stories my way. And what were some of those odd jobs you were doing that you would find on Craigslist to help oh, kind of subsidize this new hobby I mean, this that is turned into what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I drove a cab a little bit, but this was in small rural Maine, so it wasn't really like full-time work. It was like somebody would land at the little local rural airport uh, or, you know, want, want to go to the local bar safely. Uh, so then they, they would call me and I would leave my house in, in the cab to, to go facilitate that. Uh, I did uh, merchandising. Those are the, the people who show up at the grocery store at like five in the morning uh, because Doritos has a new flavor chip that they want to get on the shelf. And so like you have to rearrange the Doritos section uh, to accommodate the new flavor. Right. So you'll have like a little, yeah. a little map that you're working from and, and in a team. I would be one of the people at like the Sam's Club or Costco type places uh, doing like free samples or uh, promoting some sort of product like uh uh, you know, chocolate flavored calcium pills, <laughs> uh, you know, and seniors would come up and have like a really in-depth, robust discussion with me about their bone health. Um, but I had like, you know, no training or, you know, basically all I had available to me were like three uh, talking points, like bullet pointed talking points. <laughs> Outside of that, I was like, you know, uh, felt very unqualified to to hear their uh, their ailments. So, you know, it, it was uh, uh, all sorts of those just kind of like little scrappy jobs that, that you do to, uh, to to get by. And happily, you know, after I wrote the that thirty dollar article, I was what they called a stringer, uh, where, where I was kind of like on a, a loose agreement to do three thirty dollar articles per week. Uh, which was a nice uh, component or supplement to my income. And then from there, uh, as soon as a position opened up, I was hired at 10 bucks an hour for a 40 hour a week gig. And that was enough to pay rent at least and, and uh, kind of stabilize me in the profession. Wow. That, I know, you know, several, not even several, just a few years ago, you know, I'd, I'd run into a lot of these cases where I'm, you know, working various odd jobs to try to to have something more steady. And then it got me farther and farther away from the thing that I really <laughs> love doing, which is these kind of longer stories. Of course, this podcast, which I've still been able to keep its momentum going. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of doing those menial jobs, oftentimes I would feel like a like a loser all the time. <laughs> like, geez, like my heroes, rightly, it's like my heroes, they're not I don't know. They're not working at this store. They're not landscaping. They're not doing this, whatever. You know, yeah. they're doing the thing. Like, and you you're someone who, yeah. yeah, exactly. And you're, and you're someone who had, you know, you're working similarly menial jobs, but you had this like the vision and this focus to keep at it. So how did you have the sort of the strength and the resolve and the focus to, you know, kind of uh, compartmentalize it and, uh, and, you know, and keep your, keep your big picture alive in your head? Yeah. Well, you know, like early on, you know, every, every transition felt kind of like temporarily satisfying to me. So like, you know, first I, I wrote a $30 article. Oh, that feels great. And then, oh, now I can do three a week. That feels great. And then I got the $10 an hour job to just sit at a desk and write all day. That feels great. 
Um, and then I you know, moved up to a, uh, a regional daily newspaper uh, for, you know, probably my first decent uh, salary. And that felt uh, amazing as well. What really kind of like ignited me to keep pushing beyond that was that I had kind of a chance encounter uh, with a journalist slash author named Mike Finkel. Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book called True Story uh, about uh, his own interactions with a serial killer who had adopted Mike Finkel's name while on the run from, from the law. Hmm. Uh, and then he more recently wrote a book uh, about the North Pond Hermit called uh, Stranger in the Woods. And it was about a guy who uh, basically went off the grid and uh, didn't tell anybody, but wound up living in a little encampment for 28 years without um, any interaction with any people whatsoever. But like literally like moss on his, uh, the dollars in his wallet. Uh, and I provided him with a little bit of support on his hermit story, which was uh, uh, taking place in my backyard, you know, met metaphorically. He was able to kind of uh, share his path with me and kind of like give me the insight into, you know, how to craft a pitch and kind of like how I could start targeting those big markets with those larger uh, features, you know, and it, it was always something that like, I kind of felt like you needed connections to do and I didn't really have any connections. Um, and so even though Mike in, in a way was a connection, uh, more than that, he kind of, uh, was a, a role model to emulate. You know, he, he kind of like gave me the knowledge and the, the uh, skills of kind of like just how the whole world works uh, of freelance uh, magazine writing. And so I was able to start writing pitches then. And that's when I really started to uh, push and push and push to, to get uh, to the place where I could do freelance full time. So what was that? you know, that learning curve, like, did you, did you find that it was, it was very much hinged on the idea and the idea was King or the, you know, how did you overcome not being maybe a name in the industry? You know, this, yeah. what were some of those challenges that you had? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, not, I, I, I want to acknowledge that not everybody does it the way I do it. Some people work really, really hard to get that perfect idea and that perfect project. And then they put all of their mental energy and investment into bringing that perfect project to fruition. And I think that's a, that's a, that just suits some people better. Uh, but for myself, I instead took more of kind of like the, the buckshot approach <laughs> where I try any idea that sounded you know, basically, because of my background in, in, in the daily newspapers, I was used to the idea of really trying to see the story in things. You know, like uh, for a while, I was writing 10 stories a week, you know, and so you really kind of um, fall into the habit of seeing the story that maybe somebody else isn't go going to immediately see. And so I saw a lot of potential stories around me. And so I, at any given time, I would have maybe something like a dozen different story ideas that I would be sending out to editor after editor in, in pitch form and just kind of hoping and praying that one of those 
uh, editors would see some value in one of those stories. So over the course of years, I must have submitted, you know, d- done, oh God, I don't know, 500 submissions, may- maybe maybe 800 submissions. <laughs> uh, the vast majority of which, uh, you know, were, were just empty, uh, n- never get a response. You know, you, you've, you've thrown something and it feels like you're going into the black mm-hmm. hole, right? Um, yeah. But because I would have you know, dozens of pitches out at any given time, uh, just through kind of like my brute force method, uh, once in a while, uh, an editor would respond, you know, maybe not with a yes, but with, a with a no, you know, <laughs> and that would be valuable. Like, oh, this isn't quite right for us right now. And so then that's an opportunity to, continue the conversation with that editor. You know, the, the fact that they even spent that much time to reject you personally is a, is an opportunity to say, Oh, you know, uh, what sorts of things are you looking for right now? You know, and, and kind of, uh, seizing on to those, those, uh, few and far between opportunities and trying to turn one of them into something, uh, that, that will allow you to, to get some decent stuff published. Yeah, what you're saying and what's worth underscoring, and it's so, so important, is that a lot of a lot of people, even I would say mid-career freelancers, certainly uh, people starting out, they don't know what a good or bad batting average is for mm-hmm. landing for landing pitches. So it's like, I don't know, is it is it is it are you bad if you're landing to one out of five or is it more like one out of 10 or is it one out of 20? Like, is that a good batting average? I'm finding more and more, the more I talk to people like yourself or Mary Pallon or a lot of the other freelancers uh-huh. on the show, it's like, Oh, it's, it's far, far, it's far, far less. If you're batting 10%, you're like a hall of famer. So it's Absolutely. kind of like, it, it's a game of, it's a game of failure and knowing that it's a game of failure should empower people to be a bit more cavalier, you know, not, not just, Mm-hmm. randomly spreading pitches, you know, you got to target them, you know, and make sure you've done your homework in that sense. Mm-hmm. But knowing that the batting average, a good batting average might be 100, then it's like a 100 out of a thousand that should say, okay, I need to be pitching a lot more. And if I do land that one, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yo, yeah, I would say I never really thought about it in terms of percentage, but I think I was lower than that 5% range. And the only reason that I'm better than that now is because I have uh, built up a small uh, kind of stable of editors who I've worked with before at this point, you know? And so uh, they're, they're very receptive um, because they, they've uh, enjoyed working with me or, or been happy with the quality of the work. But as far as a cold call goes, uh, yeah, good luck. Uh, th- those editors are, are getting deluged with, uh, with pitches, right? And you have to be very, very lucky and have a very, very good pitch in order for them to, uh, to, to uh, continue that conversation with you. Yeah, and, and Seth Godin, the great writer and marketer and and leader in the world like he he has this thing where you know of course he doesn't believe in writer's block and nor do i and when people 
talk to him about that or anything. It's like, if you want to be a writer, then show me your bad writing. And mm. a lot of people can't do that. And I think it's the people who can have the endurance to to stick with the bad writing that they do every day. And some of that will be good. Uh, or mm. in the term in terms of freelancing, you know, show me all your rejected pitches and I will show you a pretty successful freelancer because they're <laughs> willing to put out 100 to get five. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That that's totally true. And you know, and then even when you get uh, a story printed or an agreement, then that creates its own kind of a uh, set of pitfalls, right? So, out of every 10 projects you land, maybe only one of them is going to go uh swimmingly, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, may, maybe that conversation with the editor results in them suggesting a story back to you that you're not that enthused about, but that you're going to do because you desperately want to please that editor and get your foot in the door with that publication. Right. Um, and so, yeah, another thing that I was always doing was kind of like continuously updating my, you know, kind of like my, my, uh, portfolio, you know, like what, what are my three best stories that I've written and published that I can show to people as an example of my work. And, yeah, at first I was working with a, a pretty piss poor body of work. And then over time, you develop those other other pieces that you can show them that kind of like demonstrate, oh, yeah, hey, you know, if uh, this guy's firing on all cylinders, uh, he can do something pretty good. And so as you're developing your taste as a, a narrative nonfiction storyteller, mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially early on, like what were you you know, reading at the time that was giving you a uh, sort of uh, entree into this world and be like, Oh, you know, that's the kind of thing I want to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was kind of funny because um, when I first started writing, yeah, I feel like such a, uh, uh, so naive sometimes because I've been very much on the outside looking in. And so there have been like, yeah, I was fully an adult writing for my weekly newspaper without really having a good sense that really masterful writing is done for newspapers, you know, <laughs> but like uh, mm -hmm. because that that was not the writing that was appearing in uh, yeah, the, the very small markets or at least not um, not that often. And so. I got clued in kind of late to the game to sites like long form and long reads and these places that kind of curate really quality long form, uh, uh, nonfiction writing, you know, journalism and all that. And when I started reading, Oh God, there's one. Yeah. I don't remember the author name. Um, but it was an article. Uh, it was written in like a second person, format so it was like you know you this you that and it was about a japanese man who had lived through uh a tidal wave you know but uh uh lost his family in the process and so it's kind of like you know it's it's written as if it's addressing him but it's describing him at the same time mm -hmm. so it was a very very creatively structured uh and it was just like kind of like exhilarating to read that and to say uh, oh my God! Yeah, that that just shows how far you can push journalism and push the envelope 
and uh, still have it be considered a, a piece of serious nonfiction writing. Uh, there was a, also a book that I read uh, around that same time period that was kind of like advice from other nonfiction journalists, you know, like like uh, narrative uh, nonfiction writing, and it was just a, basically a series of of short essays. And each writer kind of like shared a tip or two. And some of those tips were just uh, like catnip to me. Like they, they just really resonated with me. And, you know, like one, for example, uh, said it, it argued against ending a story with a quote, um, because if you're relying on your subject to close the article, you're basically saying that you can't write a better summary sentence than your subject. And, and isn't that kind of shameful? <laughs> Uh, and you know, and it's, it's true. Like sometimes a quote is perfect, but more often, uh, you're just closing on a quote is kind of like a clever way of like, uh, putting your opinion out there. Right. And trying to like pretend you're unbiased and, and, and objective, but you close it with their powerful quote that says exactly what you think, uh, the reader ought to take away. That is sometimes, warranted but i think more often you you can you can craft a better sentence yourself and uh you you've mentioned that um that you know they're writing fiction or non-fiction um they seem disparate but they're actually pretty closely tied so maybe you can speak to how how uh, actually there they there's a lot of things you can pull on for as a non-fiction writer from fiction and then certainly you know, vice versa you know if you're diving into fiction there's a lot of things you can really peel away from the non-fiction world yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I don't think this is going to be a, a, a particularly new idea to to your audience, uh, who, who include a lot of savvy writers. But yeah, to me, there's almost no difference at all between nonfiction and fiction. You know, the the only difference is that uh, one of them actually happened, right? And so, if you are a fiction writer, you are starting with everything that you can possibly imagine. Like that's your your um it's like an infinity bank of ideas and, and things that material to draw on but if you're a nonfiction writer your bank uh, uh to draw on of material is everything that's ever happened in the entire universe right which is so close to infinite that it might as well be right <laughs> uh yeah so i think it's really important to kind of realize that to to know that um, you can make points by looking to history. You can uh, slow down time. You can speed up time. You can flashback. Uh, you you want to pay attention to character arcs. Um, you know you you can you can uh, develop your characters in the same way that you would develop a uh, nonfiction character. It's just that you have to find the actual true material in there that doesn't misrepresent the subject in the process. One, actually, no, one like a uh, little uh, trick that I learned from Pulp Fiction is uh, one, one of my favorite Pulp Fiction authors is Donald Westlake, who is a, a kind of a, a mystery pulp crime thriller writer. And he did a series uh, about an antihero named Parker uh, uh, under the pseudonym of Richard Stark. And those Parker novels, there's like 20 or 30 of them, and each one begins, uh, the opening sentence in each of those novels is, you know, as action A happened, action B happened. 
right? And so, you know, it's like as Parker dove behind the uh, uh, moldering green couch, a bullet slammed into the wall above his head, right? And, and that uh, is such a, a powerful way to open a piece of writing because by the time the reader gets to sentence two, uh, two things have already happened, right? <laughs> Uh, so, so you're already like fully immersed in some sort of action sequence and narrative, and you can use that same exact uh, trick in nonfiction, right? You you just have to find uh, that that uh, bit of action to open with, uh, and you'll grip the readers in, in exactly the same way that a, a fiction piece can. And uh, when when you're starting to curate ideas that are really starting to like stick in your cross, stick in your head, you know, what as uh, you know, to piggyback on something you wrote to me, like what are some minimum criteria for you that for a nonfiction subject that, you know, is like, OK, there's more to unpack here. This is a, a seed that can really grow. Bare minimum things that I look for are not that exclusive of criteria. You know, what, what I, I really want is, one, to be able to sum up the story in a single word, and I usually can't do that until a little later in the process anyway, so it's, uh, it's not necessarily a screening criteria, but I like to be able to say that, like, a, a story is about hope or, you know, anger or, or something like that, you know, um, or corruption, uh, so something that that will kind of resonate on a on a universe in a universal way, uh, and then the other uh, big thing that I want as kind of a minimum is to be able to see a character change throughout the course of the narrative, and sometimes that is a, a character growth or a change of heart. Um, sometimes uh, it's not the character who changes, but it's our perceptions of them. You know, so so like, yeah, I, I wrote one article about a guy uh, who had passed recently. You know, we, we did this kind of like weekly feature obituary piece in, in uh, the Valley News, a, a regional uh, newspaper that I wrote in. And this guy worked at a local like organic co-op, but he was like an old school uh, blue collar, like cigarette smoking, foul mouthed guy. And he he clashed with some of the customers sometimes because they didn't like him because he smelled like cigarettes uh, and they were, you know, <laughs> lathering themselves in, in uh, patchouli oil. Um, but uh, by the end of the article, you know, your perception of that character has changed. And so his, his faults seem like, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, kind of charming curmudgeonly traits, you know, uh, so, so he didn't change, but we changed. Uh, to me, the most important thing is to have a character who will change in some way, shape, or form, and ideally to, to be able to boil everything down to a, a universal abstraction. And honestly, like, almost every every story fits those criteria if you work at it hard enough. And so... In the in the book too that that you wrote, which I which I which I I love so much, and it's uh it's it's crazy how the seed of it was. You know, you go into Grafton, Maine, just to because you were kind of uh you know got a tip about I, I believe it was just the bears attacking cats, and and that was you know what got you there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um 
So what was the genesis of that, that little story? And then the one that maybe took you to pitch it to the atavist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically I was there for an unrelated story about, uh, difficulties accessing VA benefits and, uh, the okay. woman, uh, that I was interviewing, uh, who, who was, you know, disabled and, uh, was having a hard time living in her home because it wasn't fully accessible and the VA was not helping her to resolve those issues. Uh, she had a bunch of cats and, uh, I was just kind of chit-chatting with her about the cats because uh, I, I love cats. I'm an animal lover. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to let them outside, uh, but that was before the Bears game. And I was like, oh, wow. Uh, I've never heard anyone say those words in that <laughs> sequence before, <laughs> right? Uh, tell, yeah, forget about VA benefits. Tell me about these bears. And she had this kind of amazing story about – um, how she was outside and a bear kind of like emerged from the undergrowth and snatched up a couple of kittens from her backyard, practically right under her nose and then ate them. This was not an isolated incident that this was like, uh, uh, an early indicator of a pattern of behavior that had, uh, several bears in the area that had learned to kind of prey on the neighborhood cats that was like a crazy idea to me because uh, th there's not a lot of documentation out there of bears eating cats. Um, and so I pitched the article to the atavist as kind of like the, the cat bear war of Grafton County, you know, but because uh, I was really intrigued by the different things that people in the community were valuing uh, in the face of these kind of unusually bold and aggressive bears. And, you know, uh, uh, things kind of evolved into almost kind of like a Wild West feel where you wound up having, you know, bears causing all sorts of problems in the town and people responding uh, as if there was no kind of higher authority or government to appeal to and, you know, kind of taking it upon themselves to become uh, vigilantes and, and to, to dispense justice uh, on these bears. And that was, uh, uh, I eventually learned, directly related to this um, uh, libertarian social project that had been undertaken in the town, in, in which a uh, national community of libertarians had decided that they wanted to turn Grafton into their own uh, kind of utopia. So they moved to Grafton from all across the country and made an effort to outvote local residents to uh, eliminate all of the taxes that they could and all of the rules and regulations that they could and kind of turn it into this community that emphasized personal responsibility and personal freedoms uh, at the expense of some you know, civic coordinatedness that uh, no one had realized was keeping the bears at bay. Yeah, it, it's in it's insane the dominoes that start to fall as a result of like you going up there for that original story. It's just like you must have been you just entirely floored in like the most uh, the in the way that kind of makes reporters and writers just kind of drool. Like, oh my god, like what have I gotten myself into? This is just so rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, you know, uh, it was 
and I was used to there being you know, colorful, small town, rural characters because of my career in, in uh, rural newspapers. But this town had some of the most colorful people who were doing, uh, you know, the the oddest things. And they they just felt so kind of disconnected from the world at large, you know, like they each had their own private little worlds going on. And I really started to see it as a community that had unraveled itself, not only from the larger world, but from each other. And so you had all these kind of isolated pockets of people who, because of their their limited interactions and social connections, had more room to kind of like create worlds that that reflected their own perceptions. And we all know how absurd and crazy our own human perceptions can be. That's one of the many advantages of uh, working cooperatively and in a society is because when somebody gets too far out there, other people kind of reel them in. Uh, but in this case, you know, you had some people who were just absolutely terrified of the bears, other people who uh, enjoyed watching the bears in their backyard and were therefore feeding them to attract them. Uh, you had other people who were kind of excited by the idea of hunting bears uh, and shooting bears and kind of like defending their homestead in this kind of a defend the family type fantasy that, that I think a lot of guys uh, enjoy uh, thinking about. Yeah, you, you had other people who were living in very non-traditional settings uh, where their garbage and bird feeders weren't managed very well, uh, and that provided uh, more opportunity for the bears to see the humans as a food source. Uh, that eventually culminated in, uh, yeah, uh, blood is shed on both sides, uh, <laughs> both the humans and the bears uh, are eventually set at each other uh, in this community. And it was really uh, uh, just crazy to, to watch it unfold. And these are, by their very nature, kind of distrustful people and uh, of government, of certainly, but I suspect of journalists. So how did you, uh, you know, engender a sense of, and get the access you needed uh, to a lot of the, the core figures of this book, given that Grafton would rather isolate itself off from the entire world and just kind of live <laughs> on its own? <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's a good question. Um, and in part, uh, the answer is the same as how do you break into journalism career, right? How do you how do you break into a, a community's uh, uh, social structures? You try a lot, right? You try a lot of different places. Um, and so there were weeks when I was just cold calling, going door to door, knocking on doors, random doors, and saying, "Hey, I'm writing about." Uh, bear experiences in Grafton, have you had any interesting bear experiences? And that's not a very threatening topic because people are excited by and large to tell an anecdote about a bear encounter that they've had. Um, and so, you know, that led me to, uh, there's a great uh, anecdote in the book about a, a woman uh, who winds up finding a bear going after her sheep and she and her uh, llama have uh, some conflict with the bear. That that's uh, very very fun and interesting. But it also um, 
you know, so, so there, there was a little bit of that brute force method of like, you know, if I have to knock on 20 doors to get one interview, uh, then that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but then I think I was also helped by the fact that I uh, do come from a blue collar background um, and the fact that uh, I did not tend to dress professionally and was driving a beater of a car and could relate to my subjects, uh, maybe in a way that uh, someone with an Ivy League uh, education and a, a more upscale upbringing might struggle with. Uh, so, so I think that I was able to, even though that, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it was, it was definitely a, a challenge, but I think that those factors in, in my background helped me out a little bit. And uh, <laughs> you referred to the llama piece uh, of the book in that, uh, to me, in, in this book, I came across what seemed like strategically placed, like, tentpole set pieces. And, <laughs> it, you know, the llama, to me, struck me as one. There was the attack on Colburn and then mm -hmm. uh, the fire of the church. And these seemed like, you know, those big, dramatic set pieces that were just, they were spaced out very well. They, they gave the the book that doesn't in a way have a lot of action. It did give a, a certain amount of kinetics to the structure. So what was the strategy there as you were structuring this book and, you know, making sure that those set pieces, you know, fit nicely into the story you were telling? Oh yeah. I mean, organizing it was such a challenge, you know, like, like because, you know, when I sat down, I had, you know, conversations with 20 different people uh, you know, over a period of like, like a, a 20 year period and very few of the people interacted with each other in their own kind of stories and narratives. So the real challenge was how do I take all of this great material and kind of weave it together so that it tells a singular story? How do we organize it so that it feels like uh, one story and not like 20 different stories? You know, and, and so I, I was almost tempted to break it into 20 different stories and just kind of like tell each one as its own standalone experience. Um, but that was really unsatisfying ultimately. And so instead, I just tried to find some organization. And so I kind of broke the book into three separate sections, you know, uh, chronological sections. And then that helped me gain a little bit of clarity once I started kind of like chucking the material into those different sections. I could get kind of like a rough timeline. And then in each of those sections, I looked for the kind of uh, those tent poles, as you called them, those big events that I knew were going to be very vivid scenes uh, that that could communicate a lot of what I wanted to get across. I wanted to end each of the three sections with a sort of climax. Um, but then I also wanted to hold back a few of a few of those uh, tent poles so that the climax to the third book would feel like, you know, a series of climaxes, you know, so that it, it would feel like a climax to the whole, the whole endeavor and not just the third act. You know, it took a lot of, a lot of like massaging, um, you know, the, I kind of reveal very late in the book, this idea of the free state project, 
uh, which is kind of like a scaling up of the free town project, where instead of just say freeing or liberating the town of Grafton, the libertarians want to liberate the entire state of New Hampshire, even though that was ongoing throughout the entire timeline of the book. I, I don't acknowledge it until very late in the book um, because that was when I kind of wanted to show the the broader relevance uh, to the state at large. So I, I focus on kind of like what was happening in the free state uh, project a little bit later in, in the timeline. You know, for example, when you were you know immersed with uh, in this town and among uh, among all your sources, uh, you know what struck you as like completely wacky and loony, and what maybe uh, what were some things that were like, oh, I can I can kind of buy into that, and you, you're making sense here, but you're you know you're way out in left field over here. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny because what I found was that you know bear management in the book is is kind of like a, a metaphor. Uh, or, you know, it's like a, a very concrete example of different approaches to society, right? And so one approach to bear management is what the state advocates, that is kind of a community-minded approach where everybody uh, manages their bird feeders and their garbage and kind of like discourages bears from having any interest in humans. The other vision for bear management is that every individual is on their own. You know, that the, everyone's got the freedom to treat bears on their property however they so choose. Uh, and that might mean feeding them either intentionally or unintentionally, and it might mean shooting them, right? And so what I found was that in Grafton, the fact that some people were choosing that second approach, uh, that they were uh, kind of altering the bear behavior through their own personal intransigence and, and interactions with the bear and their refusal to follow state guidelines, uh, that changed the playing field and the culture of the town in a way that even people who would advocate that more sensible first reaction uh, uh, theory of bear management are kind of like unintentionally carried along for the ride. So you, you want to manage bears properly. But if your neighbor is not managing bears properly, then you're actually in threat for uh, in threat of being attacked by a bear. Uh, and so when you mow the lawn, you better carry a gun on you, right? Or you know, when you go out. And so some of the far out behaviors that people were exhibiting were uh, actually like made sense given that the whole landscape had been changed and tweaked in this kind of crazy, weird way. People have these odd behaviors. You know, they, they chose to live in very non-traditional ways. And, and you know, I don't really have a, a problem with that. You know, I think every individual uh, was kind of following their heart and doing what seemed right to them in the moment. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I hope that pretty much everyone that I talked to came across as at least somewhat sympathetic to me. And I hope they came across as somewhat sympathetic to the reader even when they are very kind of outlandish. Yeah. And it, it's one thing when the, you know, the, you know, when that um, personal responsibility or, or whatever, it, it feels like it has some degree of civic good, but when like structures are starting to burn down and there's no fire department and people are like, well, you just got unlucky. That sucks <laughs> for you. 
or 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 when you know, or when like you know i'm managing my plot of road better but what if the person next to you is just like i'm gonna let the road go to shit so this might be nice but then you're gonna run into a shit ton of potholes it's like well we need some civic stitching here so it's kind of like it's really uh interesting how that played out in the book too yeah yeah like the whole community kind of uh, got really beaten up by this like every everything that you could measure about life in Grafton got worse, you know, whether it was recycling rates or uh, neighbor disputes or uh, number of uh, registered sex offenders, sex offenders living in town. Yeah. Everything kind of got worse. They, you know, looked at through this prism uh, of, uh, you know, personal responsibility. And, you know, before we, uh, I think before you started recording, you mentioned the Sopranos briefly. Uh, and I, I was reminded sometimes of um, this scene from The Sopranos where Meadow Soprano, the daughter, is arguing with Carmela and she's got, you know, she like wants to do something and, and Carmela's saying, no, you can't. And uh, Meadow says like, you know, I'm almost 18. I can do what I want. Right. And uh, Carmela says, is that your only point? Uh, and, uh, that really kind of like summed up the dynamic that I felt like I was seeing in Grafton sometimes as people were so preoccupied and obsessed with the idea that they had the right to do things that it got very confused in their minds when someone tried to tell them that they shouldn't do those things. Like there, there was literally early on, uh, some of the most eccentric Freetowners were advocating very openly for, the 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 moral correctness of allowing consensual cannibalism right or, or you know yeah. <laughs> uh uh just some of these very you know uh, legalized bum fights you know like, like uh the, these things that are just kind of clearly bad but they were more interested in asserting their freedoms than than in using their freedoms responsibly i i suppose yeah, Rosalie at one point says in the book that they don't get the responsibility side of being libertarians. They don't want anybody to impose anything on them, but they want to impose their ideas on everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, you know, I want to be free. I want to make my own decisions. And then even though we like to pretend that we don't need uh, approval for our decisions. You know, we, we like to just say that, you know, at some point you not only want to make the wacky decision, but you want everyone to tell you that it's a good idea. And then at some point after that, you want to make them do what you're doing. Right. <laughs> so it is, it is yeah. really weird. It, it's just this kind of like quirk of human nature where as independent minded as we all want to be, we we all kind of have this like secret uh, need for uh, affirmation, right? And, and that affirmation uh, can come in many forms, but ultimately, the more we get, the more we seem to require. Mm, yeah, it's like a hedonic treadmill of validation. <laughs> and all that. So 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 Matt, as we kind of wind down here, I I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, yeah. but I know we have to be mindful of your time. Um, you know, for kind of coming back to the earlier part of our conversation about how you got you know kind of got your start and how it um how you just slowly started to level up and and keep 
keep uh, keep doing and turning that ratchet and getting to where you want it to go. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for people who might be kind of stuck out there, maybe they're starting or even mid-career, like what might you say, you know, if you had them for five minutes and uh, you had them in a corner and they were picking your brain, you'd be like, you know what, this, the, you know, this is what, you know, fo- focus on this. You know, what kind of advice might you have for someone who feels stuck or, um, you know, just, yeah, a bit stuck, I'll say. Yeah, no, I, I think that they have to, have to, have to, make sure that they have set aside time in their week and ideally time in their day to do nothing but send out pitches, right? To, to pitch that, uh, to pitch editors uh, who they have not worked with before and they have to do it as a goal unto itself. You know, like, like you're not trying to sell a story. You're trying to pitch. Right. Like, like that, that is, you know, it's like somebody runs to lose weight. Uh, it's much harder if you're focused on the weight and much easier if you can just kind of enjoy the run for its own sake. Right. Um, yeah. The practice of it versus the outcome of it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and if you're going to get all uh, wrapped up in whether or not a particular editor is going to accept a particular pitch, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. You know, you're, you're putting too many eggs in that basket. Um, I, I would advise that they, they uh, uh, get on that uh, hedonic pitching treadmill and <laughs> enjoy the ride uh, as they crank out pitch after pitch after pitch. You know, just, just challenge yourself to get pitches out there into the universe uh, you want to have a lot of irons in the fire, and however many you think that you can you can put out there, you know, challenge yourself to double it, triple it. Uh, it's okay if it takes a little time to get there, and I promise you that that is uh, that is how someone without connections gets opportunities. You know, they 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 put them they put their fingers out there and their fielders out there in as many ways as possible. Well, that's uh, that's brilliant. And uh, and Matt, where can people find you online and get more familiar with your work? Oh, yeah. Th- thanks for asking. Um, uh, let's see. If you Google my very difficult to pronounce name, Matt Hungle Tetling, uh, you will come to my website at matthungletetling.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter on uh, at HH underscore Matt. I'm also right now organizing a songwriting contest called A Musician Walks Into a Bear. Uh, where uh, folks are writing fun songs about the book and its themes. Uh, so if you go to my webpage, you'll, you'll be able to see where you can check out some of those uh, some of those songs. Uh, that's amazing. Well, that well, best of luck with it. I like I said, I lo- I love the book, and I'm so glad we got to have this conversation about it, where you came from, and uh, how you got how you got your toehold in this crazy world. So uh, yeah, thank you for the work. Thanks for the book, and uh, thanks for making time to come on the show. Awesome. Uh, uh, Brendan, you, you provide a lot of support and inspiration for a lot of uh, aspiring writers. And uh, I'm so glad to be a small part of this good work that you do. Thank you. You can put it on the board. Yeah. Notice that mic awareness pulled away from my anyway. Thanks to Matt for coming to play ball, and thanks to Scribner for the support. Be sure to use that 20% coupon code. It's pretty awesome. 
Great deal, great program. I'm using it for Casualty Words and also the retype of Tools of Ignorance. I'm loving it. It's, uh, it's powerful stuff, even at its most simple utilization. In any case, it's great. Check them out. Support them so they support us. And hey, thanks to you, friend. It's always nice when I can, we can have this thing, this this thing between us. Hey, I, don't run away yet. Oh, but fact of the matter is, you probably already did. The Spotify analytics, sparse as they are, tell me nobody listens this far. So if you can do, interview. See ya.